Well, please take a seat. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your word this evening. And we pray to us of Luke chapter 20 and this teaching of our Lord Jesus, that you would give us minds to understand what Jesus is saying here and hearts that respond by humbling ourselves before him, repenting and trusting in him and doing so ever more increasingly and living therefore as a part of his people. And Father, we ask these things in his strong and precious name. Amen. Again, if you've got a a Bible there, please do have it open at Luke chapter 20. And those verses we read earlier on, verses 9 through 18. And in our sermon series, working our way through Luke's gospel, we've arrived now at the Tuesday of what people often refer to as Holy Week. And we're seeing that this Tuesday was a day that was filled with controversy. In chapter 20 of his gospel, Luke records five different controversies that took place on that day in quick succession. Controversies between Jesus and the various religious leaders of the day. Now we looked at the first of these five controversies last week when we saw how the chief priests and the scribes and elders came up to Jesus whilst he was preaching in the temple and they questioned his authority. And the second controversy is somewhat different to that in that it is Jesus now who takes the initiative. This is Jesus on the front foot. This is Jesus taking the argument to his opponents and launching an attack against them. And the way that Jesus does that is by telling this parable of the wicked tenants. I'm going to stick my neck out and say that this is, in my opinion, the greatest parable that Jesus ever told. Now, you may disagree with me on that point. Maybe you've got a a soft spot for the parable of the sower or the parable of the prodigal son. They're all good, of course, uh, aren't they? But simply in terms of how much this parable teaches us, I don't think any of the other parables get close to this. Like no other parable, this parable unfolds for us the story of God's dealings with his people throughout history. And then it shines the spotlight ultimately on Jesus himself, who he is and how we must respond to him. So let's dive into this great parable. And I want to unpack the parable by pointing out five turning points in this unfolding drama of redemption that this parable highlights for us. So first of all, it teaches us about God's gracious covenant with Israel. God's gracious covenant with Israel. Jesus is still in the temple. He's preaching there. 
And he says to the crowd of people before him, some of whom were the religious leaders, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. This would have been a a very familiar concept for the people to whom Jesus was speaking in the temple that day. This is a, a very common arrangement in that region in those days. Large swathes of land in the upper Jordan Valley and around Galilee were at that time owned by foreign landowners who lived far away. And they would give the care of their farms and their vineyards to local people, tenants, whose job it was to manage that land and to work it, uh, to make it fruitful. And they could keep some of the profits for themselves. They could enjoy the, the produce of the land. But they were also to give the rest to the foreign landowner whenever he came calling to take his fair share. They would have agreed this already in the terms of a contract or a covenant or some such agreement with the landowner. And in that arrangement, they would agree what work they had to do, what their responsibilities were, what would come to them, the things that they could enjoy, and what must rightfully be given to the landowner. And this is the type of arrangement you see that Jesus has in mind as he tells this parable. Everyone would get the gist of it. They were very familiar with this kind of thing. Of course, it's more than possible that some of the people in the crowd that day were tenants like that, working the land for a rich, far-off landowner. Then there's a second reason why this parable would immediately feel familiar to Jesus' original hearers. And that is because Jesus is drawing on very familiar Old Testament writings. Most obviously of all, Jesus is giving a nod in the direction of Isaiah 5. In a sense, we might say that Jesus is taking Isaiah 5 and he's expanding on it. He's setting it in a contemporary context for him and his hearers. Just listen to the opening words of Isaiah 5, and you'll notice the the obvious parallels with what Jesus says here. Isaiah 5, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. Jesus is, in a way, taking Isaiah 5, and he's putting his own first century spin on it, if I can put it like that. And what does this opening section of the parable teach us? Well, it's teaching us, isn't it, about God's gracious covenant with Israel. It's a fairly simple parable to understand, isn't it? The rich landowner represents God himself. It all belongs to him, ultimately. And the vineyard is the nation of Israel, planted and cared for by God himself, his treasured possession. Psalm 80, which we sang a few minutes ago, uses this same imagery to speak of God's dealings with Israel, doesn't it? You brought a vine out of Egypt. 
You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Just as the rich landowner planted the vineyard, God planted Israel, says the psalmist. He took her out of her slavery in Egypt and he brought her into her own plot of land. He cleared away the enemies made the land ready for them and he established Israel there and he gave every benefit to her that she could ever need his word to guide her his presence to protect her he would never leave her he would never forsake her he was gracious to her Israel didn't deserve any of this of course God didn't choose them because they were a righteous people or a strong people or a numerous people. They were none of those things. But in his gracious love. He chose them. He rescued them. He planted them. In their own land. And he protected them. And just as the landowner in the story. Appointed tenants. Over the vineyard. So also God. Appointed leaders. Over Israel. Whose job it was to be about God's work. And to serve him by cultivating fruitfulness within Israel. That is the fruit of righteousness. That's what God was looking for from his people Israel. The fruit of righteousness. Offered back to him for his glory. In thankfulness for all that he had done for them. This was God's gracious covenant with Israel. If you like this was his arrangement with them. He had saved them. He'd brought them to himself. He'd established them as his people. And now they must respond by living fruitful lives of righteousness before him as their reasonable worship. But of course, that's not how it turned out, was it? And the next part of the parable highlights Israel's persistent mistreatment of God's prophets. Israel's persistent mistreatment of God's prophets. In the parable, a few years have passed by and the landowner in that far off country decrees that now is the time to receive what he is due. And he's left it a few years. He's left it long enough for the vineyard to grow and to become fruitful. And now is the time to gather in what is due to him. So he sends a servant and the servant must call the tenants to account the servant is to go to the vineyard and declare to them again the terms of this agreement listen guys this is the agreement you came to with the landowner this is the nature of your relationship with him this is what he requires of you and what you owe to him the servant is to go and, and call the tenants to give to the landowner what is rightfully his and jesus says the tenants did not take to this visit kindly. They went back on what they'd agreed. They broke the terms of their agreement. And they want to keep everything for themselves. They don't want to give anything back to this landowner. And so they beat up his servant. They sent him away empty-handed. The landowner then simply sent another servant. And again, the same thing happened. They beat him. They treated him shamefully. They sent him away empty-handed as well. And the landowner sent a third servant. 
And we should notice, shouldn't we, the remarkable patience of this landowner in the parable. He's slow to anger, isn't he? He bears with the tenants much longer than we would expect. But again and again and again, they beat up and they wounded and cast out his servants. And they stubbornly refused to give the landowner what he deserves and what he requires of them. And again, it's not difficult, is it, to understand what this aspect of the parable is teaching us. It's teaching us about Israel's persistent mistreatment of God's prophets throughout the story of the Old Testament. God sent his prophets to the people of Israel. It was their job to declare to the people of Israel, and especially to the leaders of Israel, the terms of God's covenant with his people, preaching that covenant to them again and again. Remember, this is the nature of your relationship with your God. This is what he requires of you. Give to him what he deserves. Give him what he is due. Bear the fruit of righteousness offered to him for his glory. And again and again and again, they hardened their hearts against what the prophets had to say to them. They would not keep to the covenant. And instead, they persecuted the prophets. Some they ignored, some they wounded, others they killed. And God showed remarkable patience with Israel time and time again, sending prophet after prophet, giving another chance for the people to repent and turn back to God. And then as the parable continues, it teaches us next of Israel's ultimate rejection of God's son. Israel's ultimate rejection of God's son. What will the owner of the vineyard do next? Numerous of his servants have already been ignored and injured and killed. And yet remarkably, remarkably, the the owner of the vineyard says this, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And incredibly, the owner of the vineyard sends his very best to them. What lengths he would go to extraordinary lengths. He would send not just his son notice, but more than that, his beloved son. This is his only son, in fact. And surely, surely the tenants would listen to him of all people. But of course, they wouldn't listen to him. Jesus says, when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Maybe it is the case that the tenants wrongly assume that the landowner himself is now dead. Otherwise, why did he not come himself? And therefore, if they can get his son out of the way, the vineyard itself will be up for grabs. This is the only son that the landowner has to send. Get rid of him and the inheritance can be theirs. Because given the the laws of those days in such a set of circumstances where the landowner had died and had no surviving heir, the land would pass into the possession of those who were currently working that land. And then they would never be troubled again. All the profits, all the benefits of the vineyard would be theirs forever. They could indulge themselves. And so when the beloved son turned up, they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. It's clear, isn't it, that Jesus is speaking about what is about to happen to him in the forthcoming days. He is the beloved son. 
He is the only son of the Father, sent by the Father into the world, and he came to the people of Israel. He sent his very best to us, and surely they would listen to him. And yet, as the Apostle John writes, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And even as Jesus is telling this parable, the religious leaders are plotting how to have Jesus done away with. Back in chapter 19, verse 47, we've been told the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. And as it were, God is dead to them. And if they can just get rid of his beloved son, then the vineyard would be theirs. They could have Israel to themselves, all the power all the prestige that would come from being in positions of leadership and influence. Just get Jesus out of the way, and it would all be theirs. And by the end of that week, they would have succeeded in those wicked plans, taking Jesus outside the city and nailing him to a cross there. And of course, that would not be the end of the story. And as the parable moves into its final acts, it points us firstly to God's impending judgment against Jerusalem. God's impending judgment against Jerusalem. Jesus asks the crowd the question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And he gets his audience to consider it themselves for a second. You see, the landowner knows everything that these tenants have done. The tenants might be acting as if the landowner is no longer around, but he is around. He sees them. He knows what is happening. And he's going to call these tenants to account for the way in which they've mistreated his servants and ultimately for the way in which they've murdered his beloved son. And Jesus says the landowner will come and destroy those tenants. Of course, Jesus is prophesying what's going to happen to Jerusalem in AD 70. A couple of days previously, on the Sunday afternoon, as Jesus had made his way down the, the side of the Mount of Olives, and as he saw the city of Jerusalem before him, he made a similar prophecy, didn't he? Glance back at chapter 19, verses 43 and 44. Jesus said about the city of Jerusalem, The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jerusalem and its people and its leaders would experience this judgment of God for the way in which they had hardened their hearts against his beloved son when he visited them. And as Jesus says here, within the next generation or so, the Roman forces would come against Jerusalem they would defeat it. They would butcher its citizens. They would destroy the temple. And you see, this parable speaks of God's impending judgment against Jerusalem. And yet even that would not be the end of the story. And the last few lines of the parable point us to a new chapter beginning in this unfolding drama of redemption. And that new chapter is God's inclusion of the Gentiles in a new covenant. God's inclusion of the Gentiles in a new covenant. 
Jesus says that the landowner will give the vineyard to others. And so despite the wickedness of those tenants, there is a future for the vineyard. The landowner's original purposes and plans for his vineyard are going to be fulfilled. That covenant agreement that he arrived at with the original tenants is not completely torn up. Because in an important sense, it will continue. And yet at the same time, there will be a newness to it. Because it will continue with new tenants now. The old tenants who rejected his son have been cut off. And the new tenants are going to be grafted in, so to speak. They're going to be included in his vineyard. And this, of course, is speaking about the way in which the gospel would go out to the Gentile world as the new covenant is established in Christ. The hardening and unbelief of the Jews is not going to derail God's plans for his people. No, God is bringing new tenants in, even from the Gentile world, along, of course, with any believing Jews, Jews who accept his son. God is about the work now of making the Gentiles a part of his vineyard. They're being made a part of the Israel of God, the new Israel, the church. Once they were far off, once they were strangers to God's covenant, strangers to his promises, and yet now they've been brought near, they've been included in God's new covenant people. And they are the ones who by God's grace will bring forth the fruit that God desires to see, lives of righteousness offered to God for his glory. What a great parable this is. It carries us, doesn't it, through a whistle-stop tour of the, the story of God's redemptive purposes down the centuries, his gracious covenant with Israel, their persistent mistreatment of his prophets, their ultimate rejection of his son, the judgment that they would undergo for that, and eventually the inclusion of the Gentiles in a new covenant in Christ. And the scandal of this parable doesn't escape these original hearers, does it? They understand what this parable means. Luke says that when they heard this, they said, surely not. They can't believe what they're hearing. Surely God would not act in judgment against Jerusalem of all places and against the leaders of his people. And surely God would not instead include the Gentiles of all people in his beloved vineyard. It is a scandalous parable. Just glance ahead for a moment at verse 19 and see how shocked the leaders were when they heard this. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They knew what Jesus was meaning here. How dared Jesus speak against the leaders of the Jews like this? Where on earth does he get this stuff from? Jesus' answer to that question is simply to point the people to the scriptures. That's where he goes, isn't it? Verse 17. He looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's a line that is taken 
from Psalm 118 in its original context. That verse describes the way in which Israel and her king were rejected. They were despised and opposed by their enemies. They were like a stone tossed aside on a building site, not worth being used for anything. And yet, despite that rejection that they faced from the world around them, they were given an exalted position before God above every other nation. No other nation had known God's blessing like they had. Rejected by their enemies, but precious in God's sight. And Jesus takes that verse and he, he brings out its full and its ultimate meaning. And he says, ultimately, that verse is actually about him. He is the rejected stone. Because he is the true Israel. And he is the true king. And as he speaks these words, he is, of course, in the very process of being rejected. And ironically, it's not the other nations who are rejecting him, but it's the leaders of Israel, the leaders of the Jews in those days, and indeed the nation as a whole, who in a few days are going to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And like the tenants took the beloved son outside the vineyard and killed him there, Jesus will be taken outside of Jerusalem. He'll be put to death there. And yet that will not be the end of him. The stone the builders rejected would become the cornerstone. That is the foundational stone. The stone that holds the entire edifice together. And gives it its unity and its stability. Jesus would rise triumphantly from the dead. He would take his rightful place as the cornerstone of the church, the one who carries the weight of the entire church, the one in whom the church is united and held secure. William Hendrickson puts it like this, he says, by his glorious resurrection, ascension and coronation, Jesus has become highly exalted and from his place at the Father's right hand sends out the Spirit to dwell in the hearts of his followers and to rule over the entire universe in the interests of the church and to the glory of God. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in light of that, the most important issue of all is therefore, where do people stand in relation to him? That's the key issue here, isn't it? Where do people stand in relation to Jesus? That's the essence of what Jesus is getting at in that warning of verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the point of the warning is this. Anyone at all who persists in opposing Jesus, rejecting him, Casting him aside as worthless will face a horrific judgment in the end. They will be broken in pieces, crushed. In this parable, Jesus has been speaking for the most part about the Jews of his day and especially the religious leaders of his day. The judgment that they would face for rejecting him. And yet you notice here in the final words of the passage that Jesus broadens out the application doesn't he he broadens it out as wide as it will go he says he speaks now in terms of everyone and anyone 
In other words, it applies to absolutely everyone there is. It applies to each one of us here this evening, doesn't it? The key question is this. What do you make of Jesus? What do you make of Jesus? Where do you stand before him? That is what it all boils down to in the end. And as we've listened to Jesus this evening, you've heard tonight, haven't you, the claims that he makes for himself, that he is God's beloved son, his only son who came into this world, who was rejected by men, and yet now he is exalted as king over all, and he's the cornerstone of his people, the church. And each and every one of us faces that unavoidable encounter with him sooner or later. And everyone who has rejected him will face his judgment. And yet you see the invitation to you is to come to him this evening. And to turn from sin and to trust in him. So that you too can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to him. And made a part of his people forever. Would you come to Jesus this evening? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus that we've heard from this evening. This great parable which summarizes for us your dealings with your people down the centuries and culminates ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we praise you for him, your beloved son, who came into this world and who was rejected by men, who was nailed to a cruel cross, and yet who rose again. And now is the cornerstone of the church, the one in whom we're held together and kept secure. And Father, we hear the warning of Jesus at the end of this passage, that those who even still persist in rejecting him will face judgment in the end. And so we pray that we would all know this evening where exactly we stand before Jesus. And for any who do not yet believe, that you would open their eyes and make them able to receive and rest upon Jesus for salvation as he's offered to them in the gospel. Our Father, we ask all of these things in Jesus' strong and precious name. Amen.